The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Happy Friday, TGIF. I know you're getting a cold front in the Northeast. We're having a heat wave uh, here in California, Southern California. People are complaining they can't wear their fall clothes. Wow. We have a great show in store for you today. A great guest uh, joining us. Uh, I, your host, Leslie Marshall, Marky Mark Grimaldi, my executive producer extraordinaire, are in uh, the house. And uh, also... We have a little thing we like to start the show off with before we bring our guest in later in the program. A little thing called Ripped from the headlines. Well, you know now that today the House Intelligence Committee has released the transcript of closed-door interviews with Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. He's the National Security Council's top Ukraine expert. They also released the transcript, and he's an Army veteran, and he's President Trump's former uh, Russia and uh, excuse me, they also released the transcripts for President Trump's former Russia advisor, uh, Fiona Hill. Now, Vindman testified that acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney coordinated a plan, who, by the way, in the 11th and a half hour said, I'm not going to show up, you know, uh, and, give, and provide testimony today. Uh, Vindman's testified that acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney coordinated a plan to condition a White House meeting for Ukrainian President Zelensky on an investigation into the Biden family's business dealings in Ukraine, especially that gas company, Burisma. Uh, The uh, EU ambassador, Gordon Sondland, quote, just said that he had had a conversation. This is from the transcript. Uh, Quote, EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland just said that he had had a conversation with Mr. Mulvaney, and this is what was required in order to get a meeting. So he was talking about the 2016 elections and an investigation into the Bidens and Burisma. Now, later in the testimony, Vinland confirms that, to the best of his recollection, Sondland explicitly used the word Bidens when describing the investigation. You're talking about investigating into a a person who isn't yet even a political opponent, a former vice president, but who is a person, was not in public service at the time of these conversations, right? Here are some key experts from that uh, excerpts, excuse me, from that testimony. Long week uh, question. You were listening in real time to this call along with President Zelensky when President Trump was speaking. Vindman, correct. Question. And was there any doubt in your mind as to what the president, our president, was asking for as a deliverable? Vindman, quote, there was no doubt. I am unaware of any factual basis for the accusations against former Ukraine Ambassador Yovanovitch. 
and I am frankly unaware of any authoritative basis for Ukrainian interference in 2016 elections based on my knowledge. Another quote from the transcript. In addition, he said, quote, it became crystal clear when Office of Management and Budget Staffers reported that the hold on military aid to Ukraine came from the chief of staff's office. Eventually, it became the what I was told is to ensure that the assistance aligned with administration priorities. He goes on to say, quote, I did convey certain concerns internally in accordance with my decades of experience and training, sense of duty and obligation to operate within the chain of command as an active duty military officer. The command structure is extremely important to me. He further says, quote, our relationship is damaged. I think the relationship will continue to be damaged and undercut. It undercuts U.S. resolve to support Ukraine and certainly puts a question into their mind whether they, in fact, have U.S. support, speaking about the relationship between the U.S. and Ukraine. He said, quote, so there were probably some, you know, non-substantive edits that I don't recall what I necessarily put into it, but there were a couple of things that were not included in the transcript of the July call between President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky. And he also said White House officials did not follow the normal process to edit the July 25th call transcript, according to he, Vidman. Question. In other words, it was on a different system and you had to use a different process to put your edits in? Vinman, yes. Now, we also said that Fiona Hill testified. Here are some key excerpts from that testimony. Quote, the accusations against Yovanovitch had no merit whatsoever. This was a mismatch of conspiracy theories that, again, I've told you I believe firmly to be baseless and an idea of an association between her and George Soros. You all know George Soros is an uber liberal who's uber rich and has funded many liberal campaigns like MoveOn.org, right? In addition, she said, quote, former National Security Advisor John Bolton basically said, in fact, he directly said, Rudy Giuliani is a hand grenade that is going to blow everybody up. Clear that he didn't feel that there was anything that he could personally do about this. She goes on to say, quote, Bolton made it clear that he believed that Mulvaney and Sondland were making basically an improper arrangement to have a meeting in the White House, that they were predicating the meeting in the White House and the Ukrainians agreeing in this case based on the meeting on July 10th to restart investigations that had been dropped in the energy sector. And she also said, uh, this is a direct quote, quote from Ambassador Bolton. You go and tell NSC Counsel John Eisenberg that I am not part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney are cooking up on this. And you go and tell them what you've heard and what I've said. Here's a little background. Vindman was the first official from the White House who listened to the Trump Zelensky call to testify before the impeachment inquiry. Hill's testimony was initially disrupted by House Republicans in that protest against the inquiry. Vindman emigrated to the United States from Ukraine. He was a child, specifically three years of age. He emigrated with his uh, family. He faced attacks from Trump, al- Trump allies on cable news over his heritage. He, by the way, is also Jewish, and his family left uh, Ukraine because of anti-Semitism. Uh, and that's one of the reasons they came to the United States as refugees fleeing that hatred. Here's the big picture. The House committee's conducting the impeachment inquiry. They've released a batch of transcripts of the closed-door interview so far this week. Yovanovitch, diplomat Bill Taylor, Sondland, former Ukraine envoy Kurt Volker, State Department official George Kent, former State Department advisor Michael McKinley. The rapid pace of the transcripts release continues ahead of the start of the public phase of the inquiry, which will start next week. And today we've seen these uh, Vindman and Hill testimonies made public as well. And I want to say Republicans are getting what they asked for. 
the transcripts to be made available in public to the people, right? And they have. And still, that's not good enough for them, right? Let's rip another. A professional referee says in a lawsuit filed yesterday that disgraced Dr. Richard Strauss masturbated in front of him in a shower after a wrestling match at Ohio State University and that he reported that encounter directly to Jim Jordan, who was a congressman, a Republican from Ohio. At the time, Jim Jordan was then the assistant coach. Quote, yes, that's Strauss, Jordan, and then head coach Russ Hellickson replied, according to the lawsuit, when the referee identified in court papers as John Doe 42 told them about the incident. The lawsuit was filed in federal court in Ohio. The lawsuit implies that Jordan's response to the incident, which the referee said happened in 1994, was essentially a shrug. John Doe 42 is the second person now to say that he did tell Jordan directly about either being approached or even being molested by Strauss, who was found by independent investigators to have sexually abused 177 male students over two decades. What? The 1978 employment application information for Dr. Richard Strauss from Ohio State University's personnel files um, uh, it, it show, shows that he was put there in, in 78. Jordan, who is a powerful Republican congressman, a top defender of Donald Trump in this ongoing impeachment inquiry, has repeatedly denied knowing anything about what Strauss did to the wrestlers. He was coach from 86 to 94. He has said the allegations against him were politically motivated. John Doe, 42, said that when he informed Jordan and Hellickson about what happened, their response was, yeah, yeah, we know, end quote. quote. According to NBC News, it was common knowledge what Strauss was doing, so the attitude was, it is what it is. That's what he told NBC News. He said, I wish Jim and Russ, too, would stand up and do the right thing and admit they knew what Strauss was doing because everybody knew what he was doing to the wrestlers. What was a shock to me is that Strauss tried to do that to me. He was breaking new ground by going after a reft. Um, and, uh, and, and former Ohio State wrestler Dunyasha Yetz was the first person to say that he spoke to Jordan directly about Strauss. He previously described how he went to see Strauss for a thumb injury and the doctor tried to pull down his pants. He stormed out and he complained to both Jordan and Hellickson. Quote, it's good that people are starting to come forward and say the truth, which is that Jordan and the other coaches knew what was going on and they blew it off. That's what Yetz told NBC News. Other uh, former Ohio State wrestlers have said Jordan had to know about Strauss because he shared a locker room with them and took part in discussions about the doctor. That doctor died in 2005. Hope he's rotting in hell. Jordan's spokesman, Ian Furry, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The lawsuit has been filed by 43 survivors. It is against Ohio State. It claims the university's, quote, ingrained culture of institutional indifference enabled Strauss to sexually abuse former students and athletes from a half a dozen other sports. It cites instances of Strauss's drugging and raping athletes. It said Strauss preyed on underage boys who participated in athletic events on the campus. Now, one of those underage victims, identified as John Doe 49, said in the court papers he was 14 or 15 years old and participating in an OSU wrestling camp led by Hellickson when he went to see Strauss for an ingrown toenail. He claimed Strauss had him drop his pants, threatened him with a scalpel, and sexually was abused. He fainted because of fear. John Doe, 49, said Hellickson questioned him after he found out what Strauss allegedly did to him from other camp participants. 
Helixson said, okay, I'll take care of it. Get back to your mat. Helixson is also not returning calls for comments. Ohio State spokesman Ben Johnson said that the university, and he said this yesterday, quote, has led the effort to investigate and expose the misdeeds of Richard Strauss and the systemic failures to respond, and the university is committed to a fair resolution. The university is actively participating in good faith in the mediation process directed by the federal court, he continued. In addition, since February, Ohio State has been covering the cost of professionally certified counseling services and treatment for anyone affected, as well as reimbursing costs for counseling already received. Now, an investigation commissioned by the university and conducted by the Perkins Cole law firm found that what Strauss was doing was an open secret and that coaches and administrators at Ohio State knew for two decades that that doctor was abusing students. Let me remind you, 177 of them, and they failed to stop him, according to a report released in May. Let me tell you something. There is one way the congressman could be completely off the hook, in my opinion. One way. One way. Two, actually. Sorry, two. Put your hand swear on the Bible and take, a, take, take the stand and take a lie detector test. If you didn't know, Representative Jim Jordan, when you were assistant coach, that this man, Strauss, Dr. Strauss, was molesting, sexually abusing these 177 male students over two decades, of which you were a coach from 86 to 94, take a polygraph. Because right now we just have people on the right defending you and people on the left demonizing you. And there's a way for the truth to come out. But I find it hard to believe, if everybody knew what this doctor was doing, that you were not complicit in this, sir. And if you were not, take a lie detector test and take the witness stand. Let's rip another. The U.S., quote, didn't try to stop the catastrophic Turkish invasion of northern Syria last month. That's according to a sharply critical internal memo sent by a top U.S. diplomat that was leaked to or given to and obtained by the New York Times. Now, why does this matter? The diplomat, deputy U.S. envoy to the anti-ISIS coalition, William Roebuck, said the U.S. had abandoned its Kurdish allies to a Turkish onslaught that involved war crimes and ethnic cleansing. Those concerns have been widespread in the Pentagon and State Department, but not stated publicly by senior officials. Robach sent the memo on October 31st, Halloween, to the U.S. envoy for Syria policy, James Jeffrey, and to more than 40 other officials who work on Syria issues. Here are some key excerpts from that memo. Quote, Turkey's military operation in northern Syria, spearheaded by armed Islamic groups on its payroll, represents what can only be described as war crimes and ethnic cleansing. Another. Quote, one day when the diplomatic history is written, people will wonder what happened here and why officials didn't do more to stop it or at least speak out more forcefully to blame Turkey for its behavior. An unprovoked military operation that has killed some 200 civilians left well over 100,000 people and counting newly displaced and homeless because of its military operation. And a third, quote, the decision to stay is a good one, even if the protection of the oil rationale plays into toxic Middle Eastern conspiracy theories that need to be lanced with careful, sustained messaging reinforcing the truism that Syria's oil is Syria's and for the benefit of the Syrian people. Let's rip another. While President Trump is moving to ease Obama-era tailpipe emissions rules, Democrats running to unseat him want to accelerate the shift to electric cars, trucks, and buses and take gasoline-powered vehicles off the market entirely. So why does this matter? The 2020 presidential race could produce two vastly different outcomes for the auto industry. 
and that regulatory whiplash is hampering car makers' long-term investment decisions. Now, here's a rundown of some of the policies Democratic candidates would use to push the country toward cleaner cars. Emissions. Most of the candidates say they're going to push for a zero emissions economy by 2050 or earlier, and a few have deadlined for electric vehicle adoption. Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang have both said their goal is 100% zero emissions for all new vehicles by 3030. Pete Buttigieg's targets are 2035 for ZEVs, 2040 for heavy-duty trucks. Consumer incentives, while many say they would extend tax breaks and offer trade-in discount programs to encourage people to replace their gasoline-powered car with a zero-emission vehicle, the current 7500 federal tax incentive for EV phases out for each manufacturer after they sell 200,000 plug-in vehicles. That policy favors early adopters, not widespread use, and puts Tesla and GM, who've hit the limit, at a pricing disadvantage as more EVs hit the market. Buttigieg says he would increase the federal EV tax credit to 10 grand and phase it out after a certain percentage of vehicles sold in the U.S. each year are EVs. Charging infrastructure. Most candidates agree more charging stations are needed to support the shift to electric vehicles. Joe Biden says he would add half a million new public charging outlets by the end of 2030. Warren's plan is widespread charging stations, including at every federal interstate rest stop. And Yang and Buttigieg also say they'd invest in or provide incentives for public charges to improve EV access for all. Manufacturing incentives. Will the Democrats link vehicle electrification to U.S. manufacturing and jobs? A spokesperson for Bernie Sanders said they would create millions of jobs manufacturing clean American-made electric vehicles. Yes, but electric vehicles have fewer parts and are easier to build, meaning they require less labor. The United Auto Workers Union is also worried that many electric parts for EVs will come from outside the U.S. But, but, but listen, major pieces of the Democrats' plan, such as expanded EV tax credits, major new spending on it, charging infrastructure, would require congressional action. Even if their most aggressive plans don't come to pass, the Democrats would likely reverse Trump's efforts to weaken efficiency and emission rules. And what would the impact be? Well, when you have these kinds of variables that are vital to automakers' product plans, they would at least like to know what direction to head in. That's IHS market analysis, Devin Lindsay, as he said to Axios. Bottom line here, American roads could look dramatically different in the future, but that depends on who is in the White House. I'm Leslie Marshall. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we are going to... Uh, tell you what our guest is, uh, who our guest is coming up, and then uh, another quick break, and then our guest will be joining us. Don't go away. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. We welcome George Lutz. Mr. Lutz is founder and executive director of Honor and Remember, Inc. They're a nonprofit organization dedicated to perpetually recognizing our fallen military heroes and their families. And through the creation of the Honor and Remember flag, the organization's mission is to establish a public national symbol that recognizes with gratitude and respect the men and women who died in military service to our nation. Further goals include broad national awareness and education of the flag's meaning and importance and to present personalized honor and remember flags to the immediate families of all of our nation's fallen. Uh, It's uh, good to have Mr. Lutz with us. Mr. Lutz, thank you for taking the time and joining us today. Good afternoon and welcome, sir. Well, thank you, Leslie, very much. I'm honored to be on. I want you to talk about and tell, because you can tell it far better than I can, sir, the story of why you created the Honor and Remember flag. Oh, sure. I, I'd be honored to do that. Uh, 
Leslie, like so many other families uh, before my own, you know, that notification knock on the door is what uh, changes a family's lives. And, and that happened to us on, on December, in December of, of 2005. You know, we had two uniformed officers come to the door with really those five very simple words that no family wants to hear, we regret to inform you. You know, that our son had been killed uh, in Fallujah. Uh, he'd been killed by a sniper. But regardless of the method, the causality of that death, you know, hearing that your child is never going to come home again is, you know, it, it, it's, it's beyond crippling. And, boy, that those words put me into a different mindset. You know, it was you have to decide what you're going to do in life. You know, after that, it's it's like, how do I go on? What's the next step? Uh, what am I going to think about? Do I even want to live? I mean, so many of those thoughts go through your mind. And, and I'm, I'm going to cut this short for you because a really long answer. But I wanted to reach out. I, I realized at that moment that other families before me had lost their, their sons and daughters, their husbands and wives. And, and what could I do to, to give them a gift, something that I could, I could put together, if I, whatever that might be, that might say thank you, that might uh, you know, give something to them that, that they couldn't ever get back in return is that, that remembrance. And, and that's why the Honor Remember flag was created is really nothing existed except a couple of days of the year. And uh, I thought if we could get a national flag, a national symbol that would allow all of us as Americans to be able to have an expression of appreciation uh, when we don't know what to do, uh, then that, that was the answer to that. And so on Memorial Day of really 2008, almost 12 years ago, the Honor Member flag was as created to become our national symbol of remembrance. And so people understand when people hear the flag, they think of, you know, the United States flag, the Stars and Stripes. This is an honor and remember flag. Um, I want to talk a little more, George, and, you know, I want you to take the time. First, I just want to say I am so sorry that you have had to bury a child. I buried a child, but not from this. Um, I know that your son, Tony, I was told was on patrol in Iraq, uh, in Fallujah, when he was killed by that sniper's bullet back in 2005. How old was your son, Tony, when that bullet, when that sniper took his life? He was 25 years old. He had been in the Army just about a year and a half. And uh, he left behind a wife and two children, as well as, uh, you know, brothers and sisters, you know, grandparents, parents, and a whole, you know, family unit behind. But, uh, yeah, what, you know, uh, I, and, and there are a lot, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people, George, I, I want to commend you because there are a lot of people when they're trying to come to grips with the loss of a loved one, especially a child, which is not the proper order of things. Uh, that shock, that anguish, that uh, that agony uh, of emotion and, and that loss that is so overwhelming, I think it is a testament to you, sir, that you reached out to others that were suffering like you, other families of fallen soldiers, other gold star families, um, and you know, and, and that you were able to find well, what do we have in common besides the fact that we've lost our child, that we've buried our child, and, and you found none of you want your loved ones and the sacrifice that they made to be forgotten, right? So first of all, I want to commend you because you know, some people turn to the bottle 
Some people turn to food. Some people become reclusive or destructive uh, toward themselves or mean-spirited and bitter. And and you, sir, sought to help others, and that is quite admirable and, and commendable, and I just I want to commend you for that. But you, you, found, you found when you reached out to these families that they, they like you, they, they want their loved ones to be remembered and the sacrifice that they made to be remembered and not forgotten, correct? Correct. So oh, I wanted to heal, Leslie. I mean, obviously, I didn't want to stay in that in that grieving situation and, and uh, you know, just be hurting as, as much as obviously you know. And I'm so sorry for your loss. But one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to heal and I thought the best way of healing was to go out and reach out to other family members, you know, the Gold Star families, and find and, and let them know I was feeling the same thing, to kind of offer a, a soothing bomb, if you will, to say, hey, you're not going at it alone, but there's others out there going at it with you. And one of the things that I realized after meeting with hundreds of families, and now thousands, unfortunately, but there's only two things that a family really cries out for, and that is that their loved one not have died in vain and that they not be forgotten. And I've found that there's so many families out there doing so many things to try to keep their own loved one's memory alive. I mean, it could be a tattoo. It could be a scholarship fund. It could be, um, you know, a 5K. It could be anything they can do to try to keep that, that memory alive. And I thought, what would be the best way, the greatest gift to these families of remembrance that we could think of? And that was to create something that only had one message. You know, we remember, thank you, uh, we appreciate that sacrifice, and we will never forget. And you mentioned earlier about the U.S. flag. I mean, absolutely, the U.S. flag is, you know, you would, some would think, and many veterans probably, that that is our symbol of, of service and sacrifice. But the United States flag stands for so much. I mean, it is our nation's symbol. And therefore, it takes on the context of where, wherever it flies. And so it doesn't really stand for any one thing in particular. It stands for everything. And that's why we have state flags. We have branch of service flags. Every veterans organization has their own flag. Every college and university has their own flag. Everybody has a flag that denotes their community. But the only flag that was missing was a flag that, would, that allows really the flying freely of every other flag in this nation, a flag of remembrance for these families to know that we haven't forgotten. In 2008 is when you started Honor and Remember. You did it, as you said, to leave a legacy in the form of a national symbol, and you've created the symbol, the Honor and Remember flag, the only symbol that publicly recognizes America's fallen heroes and also recognizes their families because their families have the ultimate sacrifice. The Honor and Remember flag, uh, it's tangible. It's an iconic way to send a message to Gold Star families that speaks words uh, louder uh, then thunder. George, I understand you are on a mission and your mission is to have the honor and remember flag flown on every flagpole in the United States. And so far you have more than half, 26 states have adopted the flag as their state symbol of honor and remembrance. Is that correct? And I understand there are bills before the House and the Senate for national adoption of this flag, correct? 
Yes, absolutely, Leslie. It's been a, a long, hard kind of grassroots effort, but uh, 26 state adoptions so far. We went over half the country last uh, earlier this year, actually, with the uh, adoption of Georgia and Florida. Florida, both of those states were huge in, in support of that. And this year alone, we've had a, a, a bill in the House and, and one in the Senate. Uh, number 3615 in the House and and Senate Bill 2371. It's the first time in 12 years that we've had a bill both uh, in both ho- uh, houses on, on Capitol Hill. So uh, the grassroots effort is working. Uh, families across this nation are beginning to recognize its existence and are being honored by it when they see it. You know, it's going up on corporation flagpoles. It's, it's on the sides of trucks. I mean, it um, it flew at NASCAR uh, during a moment of silence this past Memorial weekend. It honestly is becoming our publicly recognized a national symbol of remembrance, and uh, and it's it's just such a a heartwarming thing to see that America realizes that we need some way to send a message to these families. Um, and also, uh, to date, uh, the honor and, and remember you, you folks, you've presented over 4,000 handmade personal flags to families at this time. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. Leslie, our, we have a four, a fourfold mission, if you will. One is to establish the, this flag nationally, as you said, on every flagpole in America. The second is to educate why is it important to remember our fallen? Why it's important to not just remember our fallen, but the families that they left behind and are grieving. So education, Pre- presenting is a third cornerstone in our platform, and that is to make sure that individually we present a hand-sewn, personalized version of this flag to every family, regardless of generation, who has ever lost a loved one in the history of our country. That's a pretty big uh, mission. And we've presented in the last 10 years now uh, almost 4,000 flags. And and we're talking about Korea, World War II, Vietnam, uh, regardless of casualty type. If if your loved one died while serving or as a result of serving, this flag honors honors you. And the last uh, uh, cornerstone for us is comfort. Uh, we still stay connected with the families. We have a lot of programs that we still uh, engage the families, banquets, and uh, and run for the fallen that we do, and, and a lot of ways that we engage the families individually as well. Um, there are, in addition to the almost 4,000 that you have given out so far, and they, they are handmade, there is also a, a, a lengthy waiting list, correct? So tell us, uh, one, approximately how many on the waiting list, and two, there are people listening who want to get this flag, who want to get on this list. What do they need to do to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So, Leslie, we have uh, about close to 1,000 families on a waiting list. And the reason there is a waiting list is because we just don't have all the resources that we need to get the flags made and get them presented. And so we get a request on the average of one every single day. And we make a presentation on the average of one every single day. So you can imagine that 
we're just sliding this waiting list, you know, as we go day to day. You know, we could be a year or two behind in some cases unless a flag is specifically sponsored for a particular individual. And so the, the way to, I mean, certainly we need help and sponsorship on these flags, but the way to get on the list, and we want to make sure that every single family who would like to have a flag requests one, is on our website, honorandremember.org. There will be a drop down that says request a flag, and any family can go in there and request a flag. Remember, it's for those who gave their lives while serving, while they were in uniform, or as a result of serving. It does not have to be a killed you know, killed in action or in battle situation. Uh, we are even honoring, you know, the families who, whose loved ones have succumbed to those hidden wounds of, of post-traumatic stress. So that's the best way of, of getting on that list is uh, look for that request a flag. Or, you know, we, we have a kind of a quicker way maybe to text the word flag, and I know people are into texting and things, uh, to text the word flag to 71777, and that'll also take you to an informational page where I believe you can request the flag. Um, you folks at Honor and Remember are a top-rated charity. Um, we have Veterans Day next week. We have holidays that are coming up, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, Ramadan, um, it's important for us to remember those loved ones, especially because so many of those families that sit down for Thanksgiving are not going to be able to look at the table, across the table, next to them, and ever see that loved one at that table again. Um, this might be the first holiday season since their loss. Yeah. For anybody that's lost somebody uh, in the military or otherwise, you know how difficult that first holiday without that uh, loved one is giving Tuesday is coming up around the corner on November 26th. Um, there, there's just so much. So we're going to take a break, but before we do, once again, if you want to donate to this top rated charity, honor and remember, please go to honor and forward slash donation. You can also request a flag for your loved one. If your loved one has been killed fighting for the freedoms that we are really using right this very moment. I also want to share with you some other information that you need to share to hear. Text, if you prefer to text, to 71777-FLAG, and that will bring you the information. You can also go to the website, honorandremember.org. Follow them on Twitter, at honorremember, on Instagram, at honorandremember, and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash honor remember we'll be back with george and with you right after this don't go away we are back with george lutz founder and executive director of honor and remember inc they're a nonprofit organization they're a great charity and they're dedicated to perpetually recognizing our fallen military heroes and their Gold Star families. Uh, I told you to the website. Let me give you the information again. The website, honorandremember.org. On Twitter, follow that at honorremember. On Instagram, follow at honorandremember. And on Facebook, 
uh, go to facebook.com forward slash honor. Remember, like their page and connect with them there. Uh, Mr. Lutz, with your permission, I would like to read your Veterans Day op-ed. May I do so? Is that okay? Oh, my gosh, yeah. That's going to take you a while. <laughs> ah, that's okay. I'll do I'll do it fast because I want to give you more time, too. Go ahead. <clears throat> Fourteen years ago, I considered myself – this is George Lutz's Veterans Day op-ed. Fourteen years ago, I considered myself a typical American. I wasn't any more or any less patriotic than the next person. I flew an American flag, and I was proud of my country, but I gave no thought to the men and women who served and sacrificed in our military. Let's be honest. We all want to go about our lives doing the things that we enjoy without bothering anyone else around us, just enjoying our freedoms without thought. My son Tony joined the Army in the spring of 2003, and being that typical American, I certainly supported his decision. I told him to be careful and that I was proud of him. He was old enough to make his own choices, so I hugged him and sent him on to serve his country. As a military family, we decided to put yellow ribbons on all the trees outside because that's what you did. But that didn't make me think any more about the thousands who decided to serve before him. It was nothing extra special to me. It was his job. But something happened while I was living this life of a typical American. My son wasn't coming home. He was killed on the battlefield in Iraq and would never walk through our front door again. Something had happened that my family couldn't have planned for. My world was rocked and my family was devastated. From that moment, every day became important. Every holiday, birthday, anniversary became more significant because he was now a memory. And of course, Memorial Day and Veterans Day, two days that previously I never gave a second thought, became much more meaningful. As a grieving father, I went on a quest to find out how Americans remember loved ones lost in military service. What things do we do? What words do we say? What visuals do we display? What I found was quite surprising. We had nothing specific. What my research uncovered was that there wasn't that much specifically represented those who gave their lives or the Gold Star families they left behind. We do a lot as Americans for military men and women who can see or touch, those in active duty, the medal recipients, the wounded, and others. But when it comes to tangibly remembering the fallen, we set aside one day, Memorial Day. Interestingly, there are studies that have found that between 50 and 80% of Americans do not know why Memorial Day exists. However, to the family of a fallen hero, every day is Memorial Day. That brings us to Veterans Day. Consider this little-known fact. Veterans Day is not just about living veterans. It is also about those men and women who would have been veterans had they not died in service to America. Their families observe Veterans Day differently. Their only wish on Veterans Day is that their loved ones be remembered. In my journey as a father who prayed that the loss of his son was not in vain, I made it my mission to find a way for the sacrifice of those selfless men and women to be perpetually appreciated, a tangible message that expresses gratitude for giving all the freedoms we enjoy as Americans. It was that my purpose in mind that the Honor and Remember flag was created. My hope was that the flag would be established as our nation's specific symbol of remembrance. It is a symbol that simply declares every day, thank you, we will never forget. It is a message that not only recognizes that those who didn't come home, but also pays tribute to those families and friends who are still with us who will grieve for the rest of their lives. General George Patton once said, let us not mourn that such men die, but let us rejoice that such men lived on this coming Veterans Day on Monday. One of the most important things we can do as Americans is never forget all of those who served our nation in military service, including those who didn't come home. George, Mr. Lutz, I want to honor and remember you, your son, Tony, 
I thank you for doing this and for all you are doing. I give you my word that I, Leslie Marshall, personally and my show will be giving to your charity. And I know that more will with this information you provided us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your son's service. And thank you for what you've done with this Honor and Remember organization. It, it, it's amazing. On the website, go to their website, honorandremember.org. On Twitter, follow them at Honor Remember. Instagram, at Honor and Remember. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Honor Remember. And as Mr. Lutz said, text FLAG to 71777. If you have a loved one and you are a Gold Star family and you want this Honor and Remember flag, get yourself on the list. And please give to George's charity, not just for Tony, but for all that have fought so hard for our freedoms. I thank you.